Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse and manipulation, and instances of drug use that some people may find offensive. We advise caution for children under 13. The sweet smell of the pines and calming sounds of a small stream washed over a group of mostly 20-somethings in Northern California. To any casual observer, this gathering of young people, dressed in fashionable 80s neon, were having the time of their lives. They were dancing, hugging, and laughing. Time lost all meaning as they worshipped together in search of nirvana on Earth. They were a sacred family known as the Buddha Field, united under the watchful eye of a man in his 30s named Michel. But everyone gathered called him the teacher. Michel smiled as he watched over all of the young, attractive adults splashing in the water. Dressed in a tight speedo, donning fashionable Ray-Bans, he would soon join in the fun. But in the meantime, he'd soak in the sights and marvel at the community he cultivated. There was love abound. And soon, Michel would take some members of the group to the next level. From there, he knew he'd have complete control. They'd listen to his every whim and he would never relinquish command. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be long before the facade began to crack and his loving followers began to notice the darker side of paradise. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we're following the early years of a group known as the Buddha Field. Their leader went by many names, but was frequently called the Teacher. Today, we'll uncover details about him and discuss their early teachings in West Hollywood in the 1980s. Next week, we'll explore the group's erratic movements as the Buddha field attracted attention from outsiders. We'll follow along as they found new homes in Austin and Hawaii and learned of their leaders' dark secrets. We have all that coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. 
find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Self-discovery rarely comes easily, and yet many of us embark on the journey anyway, trying to find a way to live a more fulfilling life. However, most never take the journey alone. They usually latch onto a teacher or mentor. They can take the form of a pastor, imam, or guru. People put tremendous amounts of faith in these people, and usually it's rewarded. But in the case of the Buddha field, followers lost decades of their lives to a self-gratifying charlatan. In the 1980s, many young people, born too late to be a part of the hippie movement, witnessed a massive cultural shift. They watched as their elders moved from spirituality to rampant consumerism. People were handing over their tie-dye shirts and peace signs for corporate jobs and fancy cars. In the wake of this societal shift, plenty of young people felt a drastic disconnect from the world in front of them. They were looking for deeper meaning amongst the bombast of MTV, Reaganomics, and Miami Vice. In West Hollywood, California, many were finding ways to center their spiritual lives. Despite the predominant shift in culture, pockets of transcendent communities remained, like the group of ardent followers who looked to Jaime Simón Gómez for meaning. The known details of Gómez's early life are scarce. According to some of his followers, he was born in Venezuela sometime in the late 1940s or early 1950s. His father was wealthy, an owner of either a coffee company or a ranch. Some followers later heard whispers that Gomez suffered the loss of either a brother or his mother at a young age. If true, this event would have had a pronounced impact on his life, propelling him to ponder questions of the afterlife or meaning of existence. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to a passage in Bereavement, Reactions, Consequences, and Care from the Institute of Medicine, unlike adults who can sustain a year or more of intense grieving, children are likely to manifest grief-related affects and behavior for many years after loss occurs. While it's difficult to ascertain the direct effects of this loss on Gomez, there's little doubt of the impact. Gomez didn't want to work for his family. Instead, he felt called to the stage and stardom. From what anyone can tell, he was fascinated with dancing from a young age, more specifically ballet. This passion drove him to achieve perfection, but Gomez likely didn't feel like he could rise to stardom in his home country, so he made his way to the United States. He headed straight for the West Coast to become a star. Shortly after arriving in the U.S., Gomez formulated the stage name Michelle Rostand. From that moment on, all attributions and accolades were given to Michelle. After giving himself a fresh start, Michelle found his way to the Bay Area. There, according to followers, Michelle joined the Oakland Ballet. The opportunity gave Michelle a large stage to perform on. Michelle trained incessantly. His body was in perfect shape, and he took on the appearance of an elite dancer. Yet, success never materialized from his dancing career. So, Michelle eventually tried a different route and moved over 350 miles south. He joined the movie industry in Southern California, taking another crack at stardom. Maybe he hoped that his good looks would help him out. He had piercing dark eyes, a thick head of black hair, and a body that any actor would kill for. It seemed that he even had some early success. He landed bit parts in shows like Hawaii Five-0 and Beretta. 
While there was likely little acting involved with these roles, it seemed to have provided Michel with enough to get by. During this time, Michel supplemented his income by appearing in gay adult films. While not glamorous, it was work that he could get easily because of his physique. Then finally, a big break. He managed to score a small role in a film, 1968's Rosemary's Baby. That part wasn't anything to write home about. Michel only had a few seconds of screen time, but the film was a smash. And any little bit of association was good for his blooming acting career. Unfortunately for Michel, that flower never came to prominence. He struggled to get cast in another role for a big project. Maybe his Venezuelan accent threw off casting agents, or maybe his acting skills simply weren't up to par. But whatever the case, stardom never materialized. He seemed to make do with small roles here and there, and even spent some time as an acting coach over the next decade. But Michel felt empty, unable to achieve his dreams of stardom. So, sometime in the late 70s or early 80s, he decided to reinvent himself. Over his time in Los Angeles, he'd grown interested in Eastern philosophies and New Age practices. They offered a sense of understanding and enlightenment of the self that he could relate to. So, over the next several years, Michel set about changing his life. He took classes on meditation and received several certifications. In the historically accepting community of West Hollywood, Michel offered yoga classes and even guided small meditation sessions that he called satsang. Amongst the throng of young people looking to make it in Los Angeles, Michel carved out a community for himself with those looking for enlightenment. To his students, he appeared to have a unique, divine connection with the universe and God. His past was murky. He'd mentioned things about his earlier life in passing, like his acting career or his home in Venezuela. However, no one person had enough information to piece everything together all at once. And frankly, many people didn't care about his past. They were too enthralled with his present teachings to dwell on anything so trivial. They were focused on reaching enlightenment and a closeness to God, and Michel delivered. Plus, he seemed like an incredibly likable person. Many attendees of Michel's classes noted how funny he was. He cracked jokes all the time. Given his positive disposition and unique claims of insight, it didn't take long for word of Michelle's sessions to spread throughout West Hollywood. And the young, attractive neighborhood gravitated towards him. It's hard to know if Michelle actively sought out attractive recruits or if they all came together the same way that cliques form in high school. Many of his initial students were struggling to make it in the entertainment industry. Others were simply looking for a spiritual oasis amongst the busy city, or a place where they could feel renewed from the daily 9-to-5 grind. Once they started seeing Michelle, they craved the respite he offered. A few classes and meditations here and there morphed into deeper devotion to Michelle and his teachings. Leadership fit Michelle like a glove. Someone who had strived their entire life for fame and adoration now had a growing group of followers, giving him all the attention he ever wanted. As the early 80s ticked by, the group became known as the Buddha Field. With this name change, Michel went through a metamorphosis of his own. He went from wellness teacher to a full-blown cult leader. Coming up, Michel builds a spiritual family and strengthens his hold over his followers. Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, 
Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fouls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and the house party gone horribly wrong, to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results, go deeper inside four affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with Party Fouls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 1985, Michelle Rostand had gained a steady number of followers in West Hollywood, all looking for enlightenment. What started as yoga and dance gatherings quickly morphed into a full-time affair. They called themselves the Buddha Field. Michel's teachings were a combination of traditional Eastern teachings. He drew from Buddhism and Hinduism, then mixed in with some of his own West Coast flair. When members of the Buddha Field weren't working their normal nine-to-fives, they were with Michel. They gathered on evenings to sing, dance, and listen to him dispense wisdom. Even though he was at the center of everything, Michelle made it clear early on that he wasn't all that special. Sure, it was a bit of a contradiction. He told his followers that as their spiritual teacher, he, of course, had a clearer spiritual connection. But he wasn't holy. He only represented God on Earth. Though that didn't mean that members of the Buddha field weren't meant to praise him. They often did so daily by either affirming their love for him or by honoring him as their divine teacher during their services. He explained that by praising him, they were using him as a conduit to reach God, much in the same way that people in Christian churches worshipped in front of crosses or pictures of Christ. While this behavior might have seemed strange from the outside looking in, those in the Buddha field saw no problem. Many members of the group later commented that they were too intoxicated by the loving environment to see anything strange about it. Everything about the Buddha field revolved around love, purpose, and a sense of family. That environment, a group full of attractive and loving 20-somethings, proved irresistible. This was certainly true for 22-year-old Will Allen. Will had grown up in a fairly traditional Catholic family. But after going away to college, where he came to terms with his sexuality, Will now found his parents less than supportive. As a young gay man, Will didn't have a place to call home. So when his older sister in West Hollywood told him of an accepting group called the Buddha Field, Will was intrigued. He found a community beyond his wildest dreams. Immediately upon his induction into the group, Will felt the love and sense of family he'd lost at home. In the Buddha Field, Will belonged. They accepted his sexuality and found a use for his filmmaking passion. Michelle took a liking to Will and brought him under his wing. He wanted to guide Will and also have him film what went on in the Buddha field. Not only would the footage document the group, but Will could be used to make films that helped spread the group's message. Wherever Michelle went, Will was there with his camera. He documented everything, the good and the bad. Despite having an air of openness and love in the Buddha field, Michelle also enforced some demanding requirements from his followers. Michelle taught that people needed to honor their bodies as well as their minds. As a result, most members of the Buddha field spent plenty of hours each week working out. 
Under Michelle's tutelage, they all pushed each other to stay thin and fit. To foster this environment, Michel led his followers in ballet classes. While some found enjoyment in the activity, most followers had little affection for the dancing sessions. In stark contrast to his loving message, Michel required perfection in ballet. During these classes, the funny, jovial teacher disappeared as he scolded anyone who fell short at the mark. But it seemed that those in the Buddha field simply put up with this draining activity because of how much they enjoyed Michel's teaching and being a part of the group as a whole. These classes were only the first signs of Michel's growing control over their lives. Despite being surrounded by other young, attractive people, Michel forbade his followers from having sex. He said it was a low form of energy that didn't add to their spiritual journey. While many of the newer members followed Michel's teachings to a T, those who had been a part of the Buddha field for years still had sex. They often slept with each other, but they kept these interactions on the down low, always making sure Michel didn't find out. On the weekends, Michel planned trips to the beach or the mountains. These events were perfect rejuvenating cleansers after a tough week at work and filled the spirits of Buddha field members. There, out in nature, they danced and sang together, to those on the outside, the group likely looked like an athletic college club. Inside, they were a family, growing closer all the time. The highlight of these weekend trips included something called Shakti. It was a ceremony Michel performed to transfer his energy to his followers. One by one, Michel's followers kneeled in front of him. First, he rubbed his hands over the person to help stimulate the flow of energy. Eventually, Michel laid his hands on their heads and placed his thumbs over their foreheads to direct his energy to them. This thumb then vigorously shook back and forth as the person's head slowly bent back. In response, the person on the receiving end often started shaking. From Will Allen's footage, Buddhafield members convulsed, so overcome by the power of Michel's energy and raw emotion. They experienced a euphoria that was hard to explain or comprehend. They felt coated in love, not only from Michelle's energy, but also from their Buddhafield family that surrounded them. These experiences proved to the group that Michelle was as gifted of a teacher as he claimed. These euphoric experiences might also explain why Michelle's followers started to cater to his every whim. While Michelle said he wasn't holy, it became a great honor to serve him. They all became his acolytes. Michelle didn't lift a finger for anything. He never drove, prepared his meals, or did household chores. All of that was handled by his followers. To them, the less time he had to worry about mortal problems, the more time he could devote to the knowledge of the universe and God. But some of the things they did for Michelle were a bit extreme. Will Allen, the group's faithful camera operator, also was one of Michelle's masseuses. With Michelle's obsession with fitness, Will had to be there at his teacher's beck and call. He made sure that Michelle was in peak condition at all times, no easy feat. No act of service was too small either. One member prepared an intricate fruit salad every morning for Michelle. When the Buddha field went out, another follower was responsible for bringing a special folding chair for Michelle to sit in. They strapped the large chair on their back and set it up whenever Michelle needed to sit down. They draped it with expensive fabric, and it was always bigger than any of the chairs brought by other members. But rarely did his followers complain. They felt so much good radiating from the group that they didn't stop to contemplate the ridiculous lengths they went to in pleasing Michelle. Their devotion to Michelle also spread to their finances. 
Michelle didn't demand anything from the members of the group, but they readily gave what they could. They made sure that they had enough for rent and groceries before they gave anything to the Buddha field. But it appears that sum wasn't insignificant. According to a former follower, the group owned several properties in West Hollywood. These were places where the Buddha field could worship, as well as homes for members to live. With members living in Buddha field housing, they were able to give even more to Michelle. It only fueled his control over the group. He now had people who idolized him, waiting on him hand and foot while they handed him their money. And he was going to keep it that way, no matter the circumstances. If anyone decided to speak out against Michel or some of his teaching, he often told them to, quote, drop their minds. To his followers, this meant they had let their ego get in the way, and they needed to stop thinking about themselves first. This could have been an example of Michel pushing his followers to a form of groupthink, or a state where they put the Buddha field's well-being ahead of their own. First discussed by psychologist Irving Janis in a political science setting, in these situations, people disregard their doubts of morals in favor of a leader's word. According to Paul Tehart, a professor of public administration at Utrecht University, to preserve the clubby atmosphere, group members suppress personal doubts, silence dissenters, and follow the group leader's suggestions. They have a strong belief in the inherent morality of the group. The 100 or so Buddha field members became dependent on Michel's input and constantly looked to him for direction. But to Michel's credit, he still appeared to care about his followers' well-being. He gave a genuine air of caring, even if his demands of devotion had increased. And when some people did leave the group, Michel didn't try to stop them. He didn't want to keep someone in the group who wasn't completely devoted to the cause. However, that didn't mean he just blindly trusted others to stay. To further keep tabs on loyal Buddhafield members, Michel also held hypnotherapy sessions that he called, quote, cleansings. Every member of the Buddhafield had this performed once a week and paid $50 to Michel for his time. He said the purpose of these meetings was to free themselves from past trauma as a way to be closer with God. But during their private sessions, Michel learned everything about a follower's life. Think of the cleansing as the equivalent of a Catholic confession or reading session in Scientology. On the one hand, these sessions were very cathartic for followers. Many said they felt a weight off their shoulders once they left the room. On the other hand, Michel now knew the Buddha field's past, their fears, and deepest desires, and he would wield those secrets however he pleased, all to maintain his rule. Coming up, the Buddha field is threatened by the outside world for the first time, and Michelle decides to flee. Now back to the story. By the late 1980s, Michel Rostand had cemented his place as the master and teacher of the Buddha field, and he had no intention of slowing down. If anything, he implemented practices that further tightened the hold he had on his roughly 100 followers. In 1989, Michel took things in the Buddha field a step further. He decided to hold a life-changing event called The Knowing that he promised would reveal the secrets. But instead of a spectacle for everyone, he held it over his followers' heads by saying it was only for the worthy. He said that only those who he felt were ready could participate. Michel based this on a Hindu book called the Bhagavad Gita, wherein Krishna decided to give one of his followers, Arjuna, their knowledge of the universe. 
For those in the Buddha field, this was the opportunity of a lifetime, or something many of them had been searching for all along, meaning for a world that felt so foreign and unyielding. But Michelle insisted that they had to be willing to give up everything to reach this next stage of understanding. As the group gathered in the forest outside of Northern California for the day's long getaway, some worried that they would be found unworthy. They reflected on everything they'd done for Michelle, or more critically, the things they hadn't. It seemed as if Michelle was working to separate those who had completely given themselves to him, both spiritually and financially, from those who hadn't. To add another layer to his scheme, Michelle gathered his followers and asked them if they were ready. He told them that he would know if they were ready or not. With their decisions cast, Michelle walked away. Over the next several days, Michelle sat in his ornate chair draped with a tapestry as his followers walked up a path to meet him one by one. There, they knelt in front of him and awaited his decision. He placed his hand on their head and asked if they were willing to give themselves up for God. Many replied that they were. Then, after what must have felt like an eternity under his intense gaze, Michel handed down his final verdict. Unfortunately for some, he rejected them. They needed more time before they were ready for divine knowledge. They left his presence feeling unworthy and unsure of what they'd done wrong. While defeated, their reactions were drowned out. The excitement of those Michelle determined were ready spread throughout the camp. They would soon get the secrets to the universe. Accounts of the knowing are vague. From most descriptions, the proceedings were a combination of weekly, quote, cleansings and a souped-up form of Shakti, though the finer details of the knowing were kept secret. Those who were granted the privilege painted it as a psychedelic experience. They saw a multitude of shapes and colors and felt an overwhelming sense of happiness and calm. Members of the Buddha field who had received the knowing were likely experiencing a form of religious ecstasy. According to researcher Kai Bjorkvist, when a person is using an ecstasy technique, he usually does so within a tradition. When he reaches an experience, a traditional interpretation of it already exists. The Hindu mystic experiences unity with Brahma, while the Catholic mystic sees visions of Jesus and Mary. For those in the Buddha field, the ecstasy was tied to Michel's divine connection to God. After the ceremony ended, those who had the knowing returned down the path in a daze. Some were so overcome by emotion that other Buddha field members had to physically carry them. Some followers said they saw atoms and electrons whizzing around them. One member of the Buddha field said the euphoric experience lasted for three days, during which time they felt like they dropped acid. The feeling throughout the camp over those few days was of love and acceptance. Even for those not chosen, they now had a new goal to strive towards. During these days in the mountains, Michelle approached Will Allen. He said he'd been awake at night fighting with God. God had told him that Will would be in a major accident. But Michelle assured Will that if he followed his every command, he could avoid any harm. Will, a complete believer in Michelle, accepted what he'd been told. Soon after, he was given the knowing. At the end of the trip, the Buddha field packed everything up and headed back home to West Hollywood. But while everyone was busy trying to connect to the universe and praising Michelle, he further abused his position of power. Michelle kept those he liked the closest, followers like Will and others. They went with him nearly everywhere. 
So when Michel wanted a trip to Hawaii, he took Will and a handful of other devout followers with him. There, they enjoyed the beach, went snorkeling, and in general had a relaxing time. But beyond the fun, the members were still there to serve him. They cooked for him, took him around town, and made sure that his body was in peak condition. With his followers in tow, Michel confidently walked down the beaches in nothing but a speedo and dark sunglasses. He kept his eyes on his followers, especially Will. There, in paradise, Michel called Will to his room. By now, Will fully believed in Michel and the Budafield's cause. When he had struggled to find a place in a world that didn't accept him, the group quickly became his home. So when he arrived at Michel's room that day, he likely didn't think anything was amiss. But Michel had other ideas. He told Will that he wanted to help him become even closer to God. Then Michel sexually assaulted him. Michel claimed that his master years before had done the same thing with him. He said that what they did was for Will's own good. He made Will promise to keep what happened a secret. Out of devotion to Michelle, he agreed. After the trip to Hawaii, life in the Buddha field carried on as usual. Many followers felt like they had everything they could have ever wanted. A close community, a spiritual family, and access to a man with knowledge of the secrets of the universe. They often joked about what things must have looked like from the outside. They knew they came off like a cult, but they always laughed it off. They didn't feel like they were being taken advantage of. Michelle demanded a lot from them, but that was just the sacrifice to reach happiness. They were chasing nirvana. But things couldn't stay the way they were forever. The longer the Buddha field remained active, the larger their presence grew in Southern California. And it didn't take long for critical minds to begin questioning them. Rick Allen Ross, the founder of Cult Education Institution, got wind of the Buddha field. He heard about a woman who might have been part of the group unwillingly. Ross had cultivated an image of a whistleblower who called out cults for their insidious activities. He also worked as a deprogrammer, helping those seeking to leave cults. By the time he began paying attention to Budafield, Ross had made plenty of media appearances on national television, and his word carried a certain level of credibility. However, from accounts within the Buddha field, the woman in question was never in any harm and a willful member of the group. According to them, a jealous stalker took the story to Ross. While it's hard to pinpoint Ross's actual interest in the Buddha field, Michelle worried. He knew that if Ross got seriously involved, media attention would increase. And given Ross's reputation, it brought the real possibility of government agencies stepping in to do real damage. Michelle likely didn't want the outside world to know what was going on inside the Buddha field. Outside eyes threatened the community he'd built and the followers who listened to his every word. As Michelle let his anxiousness fester, he grew weary of staying in Southern California. He told his followers that he couldn't complete his work with this stress hanging over him. He manipulated the group into thinking that every Christ-like figure who had walked the world before him was killed. So, in 1992, he and three of his close followers, including 29-year-old Will Allen, hit the road. They left word for those in the Buddha field that they'd be in contact with them. Michel assured them that they'd be together soon, once he found a safe location for them, someplace far away from any negative attention. For the next six months, Michel, Will, and the others crossed the country. They spent time in Sedona, Arizona, a place renowned for its spiritual energy. However, Michelle didn't feel that the small Arizona town was the right fit. 
Instead, they continued traveling east before eventually settling down in the outskirts of Austin. In those months, it seems that Rick Allen Ross's interest waned. He saw Michelle as less of a threat, now that he was physically distanced from the remainder of the Buddha field. He didn't know that the group was setting down strong roots in Austin. One of Michelle's faithful followers used their money to place a down payment on a house. Once Michelle settled in, he sent word for everyone in the Buddha field to join him. After hearing from their master, people in the Buddha field dropped everything. They quit their jobs, packed their things, and broke their leases. They were headed to meet Michelle. But when they got there, he told them that he'd changed his name. He was now Andreas, and away from the prying eyes of the outside world, Andreas could do whatever he wanted with his Buddha field. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the Buddha field. We'll discuss Andreas's growing cult of personality and uncover the bombshell that destroyed the Buddha field. For more information on the Buddha field, amongst the many sources we used, we found Will Allen's documentary, Holy Hell, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Gitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners, it's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fowls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. <laughs>